Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation from my flagship station, WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. The phone number is 877-973-7425 if you would like to be on the program uh, to review. I'm going to shake things up from what I was going to talk about. We're free-forming it, unprepared, but I'm a professional. Jerry called in in the last hour, the last minute of the last hour to be precise. They want to know what I thought about uh, the, the Democrats, just kind of Adam Schiff editing, revising uh, testimony on the January 6th commission and all the other stuff with the Democrats just in absolute panic. I have a theory, and I want to talk about it. I, I really think the way, you know, well, let me back up. And again, I, this is just, I, I hadn't sat down and, and, and vetted out any sort of monologue here. I'm just, I'm just doing this. I am a professional. It's what I do in all cases. But the Democrats, I think, think because they're called the Democrats, that they are somehow the party of democracy. You know, anybody can be a republic as long as you don't have a king. A dictatorship is a republic. So they say, oh, those republicans they want a republic. A, an autocratic republic would be fine with them. We are the Democrats. We, therefore, are the guardians of democracy because we're the Democratic Party. You know, they get real upset still when you call them the Democrat Party. The Democratic Party. Democratic values. They, they've, they've got it all woven together. After all, they can revise words to mean whatever they want to mean, so they revise all this and tie together the Democratic Party and democracy. They're all part of the same thing. And now let's step back. For years now, the Democrats have invested in a singular particular idea. It is the idea that demography is destiny. It is the idea that the days of the Republican Party are coming to an end, that the whole nation would eventually go like California. In the battle between are you going to be like California or Texas, California would prevail. They believed this institutionally. They believed it. And it's not going that way. Not only is it not going that way, you got the problem with Florida now. It's not just, will the nation go the way of California or Texas? What about Florida? And there are two of them, Florida and Texas, versus one of California. Sure, you've got Illinois and New York in there, but they're losing population. Texas and Florida are gaining seats in Congress. California, for the first time, did not gain a seat in a census. Didn't gain a seat. New York, Illinois, losing seats. So southern states, those red states that are gaining seats. It's the Republicans who will draw the lines. But the Democrats institutionally, philosophically, believe demography is destiny and they are the party of democracy. And since things aren't going their way, they've got to come up with a way to explain it, to rationalize it, to focus on it. So what do they do? Well, 
the, the chief thing Democrats do is voter suppression. I mean, when, when an election doesn't go their way, the voters were suppressed. Look at Stacey Abrams in 2018. Stacey, it's not that Stacey Abrams did not win the election or come close to beating Brian Kemp in Georgia. Stacey Abrams didn't make it into a runoff. That's the thing. Abrams never made it into a runoff. When you hear people talk about her race, hear a lot of people talk as if she would have beaten Brian Kemp but for voter suppression. No, no, no. She would have gotten into a runoff and then been beaten by Brian Kemp. When the Democrats don't get their way, it's that the Republicans have suppressed the vote or now the Russians have stolen the election. We know that the Russians did engage in hanky-panky in the 2016 election. It was not to help Donald Trump get elected. It was to sow discord and have Americans divided against each other, and it worked. But the Democrats institutionally believe the Russians stole the election for Donald Trump. By faith, they believe this. And anything that challenges their belief has to be dismissed as some sort of heresy. Because the Democrats believe they are dominant. The Democrats believe, based on the demographic trends of this country, their rise is inevitable. And the Republicans are just putting up roadblocks to slow down their rise, except if you pay attention to the data, that's not the case. The data shows as the Democratic Party gets whiter and richer, their middle-class black and Hispanic voters are leaving for the GOP or sitting it out. Nobody wants to be the party of Karen except the Democrats. And the black and Hispanic voters, they don't want to be in the party of Karen. So the Democrats can't figure this out. It's it's one of the, the secret advantages the Republicans have moving forward. As we head now into 2022, as we head now officially into the midterm season, the first primaries are now only about three months away. The Democrats have an entire media echo chamber that tells them the Republicans are against democracy, that the Republicans are authoritarian, that the Republicans are the ones who want to take over, and once they hold power, they will never give up power. That They have an entire media machine to echo this in their ear and make them feel like they're on the side of righteousness, that they must, for example, get rid of the filibuster in order to pass voting rights reform, in order to what? Not to actually make it easier to vote, contrary to what they're saying, but make it so that they can't lose power. They want to change the rules to be advantageous to the Democrats themselves. They really genuinely do believe that the Republicans are a threat to democracy. And if you're a Democrat right now listening, I bet you have internalized this. I bet you think that really is the case. Because it is essentially where the Democratic Party has gone with its rhetoric and where CNN and MSNBC have gone with their rhetoric. The authority, listen, Donald Trump, yes. Does he have authoritarian tendencies? Yes, he does. And have Republicans to some degree enabled him? Oh, yes. Yes, they have. Republicans 
did not stand up to Donald Trump. It's true. We should acknowledge it. They Whatever Donald Trump wanted, they gave him. They're scared of Donald Trump's voters. It's the nature of democracy, though. You get scared of someone's voters, you do what that person wants because the voters will turn on you. It's just what happens. But the heresy out there is that the Republicans wish to undermine democracy and they must be stopped at all costs. This is Ari Melber. He is on MSNBC, has his own show. Listen to some of this from him uh, as he makes this case. And again, MSNBC in particular has gone all in on the Republicans are authoritarians who want to coup. Republicans are pushing voter restrictions around the nation as the failed coup looks more like a training exercise, which is the framework for Vice President Harris today on voting rights. I think it's one of the most critical um, battles before us right now is, um, is what we must do to protect the integrity of the right to vote. We know we've got a fight on our hands. And what must we do? What is the fight for? Not just against, what is it for? Well, two things. We've got to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and we've got to pass the Freedom to Vote Act because we need the tools to be able to fight against what these states are trying to do. Meanwhile, Ted Cruz has been pushing a debunked claim about voter fraud, which is false. And when there has been some recent voter fraud, it's Republicans who've actually been caught. The headline today... Three people in Florida arrested for casting more than one ballot. You're not allowed to do that. All three registered Republicans. A Nevada Republican also claiming someone voted with his deceased wife's ballot, but the person he was telling on was himself. Or in Ohio, also a deceased father's signature on the ballot, but it was a Republican official who pushed that. In Pennsylvania, we saw the same trick. But overall, although these cases are rare and make some Republicans look silly for vamping all this, actual voter fraud is rare. The AP finds the rate in battleground states was 0.0018. So there he is saying it's a Republican coup attempt. Trial run, January 6th was, but also, and there's no such thing as voter fraud. It's very insignificant. But you know, voter suppression Voter suppression, they all want to believe voter suppression. And this is where it gets to. The Democrats believe that it's their power. And when Republicans get it, it's just an anomaly. It's a blip on the way to their manifest destiny of permanency. You look at California. Remember, all the nation is supposed to go like California, and it's not going to go like California. So the Democrats now have to come up with theories for why it doesn't work. It'd be very much like, let's just random hypothesis. Let's say some guy shows up, claims he's Jesus, has the scars to prove it, doesn't do what the Bible says he'll do when he comes back. The Christian would say, well, this is probably the Antichrist. It's not really Jesus. Others will try to reshape scripture to try to say, yeah, let, let's let's twist the words to make it so. It's what the Democrats are kind of doing here. Uh, you, you've got the, the 
Democratic Party, which isn't very democratic these days, let's be honest, look around the country as they want to silence anyone who dissents with them. They're now trying to reshape, well, democracy is what we say it is. It's not what the founders said it is. It's not what the Greeks came up with. It's none of that stuff. It's what we say it is. And if it doesn't look like it, well, then by God, we're going to change the definition of what democracy is to make it be about the Democratic Party. Now, some of you out there, particularly those of you who are Democrats, say this is crazy talk, but look at what's happening around the country. Democrats themselves, you say Republicans want to engage in voter suppression and change the rules. The Democrats do the same thing. The Democrats have been complaining about Republican gerrymandering, are gerrymandering themselves into power in New York and Maryland and Illinois. Well, it's just because that's what the Republicans are going to do. The Democrats have been doing it for a very long time. Elbridge Jerry, who the word gerrymander comes from, was a Democrat. But pay no attention to history. When things don't go the way the Democrats like, they've got to scream foul about it. They can't just take the loss. Whenever a Republican wins, it's because voters were suppressed. They have really, really completely embraced the idea that they themselves are the party of democracy because they're called the Democratic Party. Never mind that some of the policies they advocate aren't very democratic, and never mind the fact that around the country, the Democrats are just as likely as Republicans to want to change the rules to benefit themselves. It's what political parties do. It's not a unique phenomenon to Republicans. And by the way, yeah, I think January 6th was bad. I think it was bad. I don't think it was a coup. I think it was bad. The Democrats, however, let's be clear here. They're headed to a point where they could do the same thing, and you and I know it. When they tell us that the world is going to end in less than 10 years, and the Republicans themselves are the autocrats, and once they get back into power, they're not going to leave again, if you really do believe that, don't you want to stop the Republicans from getting back into power? It's only a matter of time before they act on their own vices and their own rhetoric. Just wait and see. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. It is a Friday. You are more than welcome to call in 877-973-7425. Roy, I'm going to go to you next. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Um, Hi there. Thank you. I'm a, um, I don't think... Trump, although I like his how he op, how he um, manages the country, um, I don't think he'll be capable in 2024 of doing the job. So I'm, I'm looking for another uh, candidate and wondering if you have uh, your ideas. Well, look, I, this is one of the, the cool things I think about being a Republican these days is the bench is so much deeper for the GOP moving into 2024 than what the than what the Democrats have. I, I don't think Joe Biden is going to run again. Kamala Harris would be a disaster. Likewise, I also think that um, a that the uh, Pete Buttigieg would be a disaster. Um, so who do the Democrats have? Look at the Republican side, though. Uh, the Republicans, uh, the front runner, I just, I do believe the front runner for the GOP is not an endorsement. I'm just telling you. And I got to say, it's not an endorsement because I'm just giving you the facts. People are like, oh, is this who you're going for? No, not necessarily. Ron DeSantis. I've got a lot of friends who will be running in 2024. Um, Ron DeSantis, I don't really know him. He's like one of the ones I don't know. Uh, Nikki Haley, longtime friend. She'll be running. Mike Pence, longtime friend. He'll be running. Tom Cotton, Long-time friend, he'll be running. Ted Cruz, long-time friend, he'll be running. Marco Rubio, long-time friend, he'll be running. Josh Hawley, don't know him as well as some of the others, but I know him, he'll be running. The Republicans have a really deep bench, and they're all good candidates in various ways.
I think that DeSantis right now, the way he has captured the attention of the Republican base, he probably is the front runner. And uh, so there's this idea in politics of peaking that um, you, you can't peak too soon. If you do, people take a look at you and then they move on. I remember, and this is this is one of the reasons I knew Mitt Romney was a weak candidate in 2012, uh, because in 2012 you had all of these Republicans running. You had Herman Cain running. You had Rick Perry running. Um, who else did you have running? Did you have Bobby Jindal running? I think um, you had a number of Republican candidates who ran in 2012, and all of them surged into first place before Romney. And it was very clear that every Republican was looking for an alternative to Mitt Romney. And didn't work out well. They all flamed out for various reasons. But it was a sign to me that Romney wasn't as strong as he looked with the base. And, you know, frankly, uh, if you go back to 2015, 2016 with all the Republicans running, Donald Trump won the Republican nomination with the lowest percentage of vote uh, of anyone, including John McCain. Donald Trump was able to win the Republican nomination with only about 42% of the party voting for him in primaries. There were It was just such a crowded field. He benefited from it. You move into 2024, and look, uh, the, the more Donald Trump talks right now, the more I think uh, people are having questions. His, his interviews about Israel are brutal, He's not doing himself any favors with his attacking Bibi Netanyahu uh, and and some of his statements there. Um, he is going to be Joe Biden's age. I don't know that he's going to want to do it. A lot of people say, oh, of course he's going to do it. I, I don't know. We'll see how 2022 goes. I, I do think if in Georgia, Brian Kemp wins his primary, and it's looking like he probably can win his primary, uh, that sends a signal to Donald Trump that maybe the base is with him but not necessarily with others who he supports? And does he want to go in on a base that supports him, but not his friends? I don't know. It's a complex issue. What I do know is that if Donald Trump steps aside and doesn't run in 2024, the Republicans have a very deep bench and the Democrats do not. And that's a good thing. Now, when we come back, millennials, at least woke millennials, are starting to fret about their working through the apocalypse. Yes, someone has actually written an article about working through the apocalypse, a progressive millennial at Vox. I want to actually discuss this because wait until you hear their spin on working through the apocalypse. For several years when I practiced law, I volunteered for the Alliance Defending Freedom to be an on-call lawyer for them. It's one of the few legal nonprofits in the country that really racks up wins, both state courts and federal courts for conservatives and Christians. People have a Christian conservative worldview. Since leaving my law practice, I've volunteered in the past to speak at ADF events. I've been to their training sessions where they teach lawyers and pundits how to talk plainly about complex legal issues and understand the state of play on cases around the country from local city councils all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now I'm glad to have ADF as an advertiser, but honestly, I'd be encouraging you to support them this time of year anyway. The Alliance Defending Freedom takes donations from you and uses them to help those who can't afford lawyers hire the very best lawyers to fight for freedom from the Supreme Court of the land 
all the way down to the local level. Right now, ADF has received a matching grant, so all new donors will have their gifts matched. All you have to do is go to adflegal.org slash Erickson today and donate. adflegal.org slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. Uh, real quick, I am happy to entertain your phone calls today, and we will loosen it up. I am... Well, I'm recovering from a really, it was the worst, I think I would have preferred COVID, uh, the worst bout of food poisoning I have ever had. Uh, and my throat is a little, I'm I'm handling it, but yesterday was 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 not a good day. Um, so, uh, if you want to call in, you're more than welcome to 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I saw this article and I, the moment I realized it was from Vox. Vox is where uh, progressive kids go to form their alternative universe. It's part of the, the left-wing echo chamber that tells you what the news is as they want, not as it actually is. Anna North. I don't know who Anna North is. Uh, Anna North is a progressive writer at Vox.com and has this, the headline, the world as we know it is ending. Why are we still at work? And the subtitle, From the Pandemic to Climate Change, Americans are still expected to work no matter what happens. The opening sentence gives you everything you need to know about her take. For a moment in early 2020, it seemed like we might get a break from capitalism. A novel coronavirus was sweeping the globe and leaders and experts recommended that the U.S. pay millions of people to stay home until the immediate crisis is over. These people wouldn't work. They'd hunker down, take care of their families, and isolate themselves to keep everyone safe. With almost the whole economy on pause, the virus would stop spreading, and Americans could soon go back to normalcy with relatively little loss of life. Obviously, that didn't happen. Instead, white-collar workers shifted over to Zoom, often with kids in the background. And everybody else was forced to keep showing up to their jobs in the face of a deadly virus. Hundreds of thousands died. Countless numbers descended into depression and burnout. And a grim new standard was set. Americans kept working even during the apocalypse. Now it's been nearly two years since the beginning of the pandemic, a time that has also encompassed an attempted coup, innumerable extreme weather events likely tied to climate change, and ongoing police violence against black Americans. And we've been expected to show up for work through all of it. I don't think people are well, says Rihanna Elise Anderson, a clinical and community psychologist and professor at the University of Michigan's School of Public Health. We are moving along, but we are certainly not well. For some Americans, working during the apocalypse is fatal. Think of the transit worker who died from COVID-19 in 2020 or the Amazon warehouse workers killed by a tornado on December 10th in Illinois. All disasters are workplace disasters for some people. Oh, good grief. You know what? Americans are a hearty, resilient people. But I am increasingly worried about a lot of the um about a lot of the, the up and comers particularly in the public policy space on the left. They seem broken out of the gate. I don't know this person's age, if 
if she's writing at Vox, I imagine she's not that old, does not have lived experience. That would be my guess. But the idea that we're at the apocalypse and we're all still working, what else are we supposed to do? By the way, we're not at the apocalypse. When the Spanish flu was spreading around the world in the early 1900s during World War I, soldiers still went to fight. Workers still went to work. That's what they did. In the 1960s, there was riots and social unrest around the country. People still showed up for work every day. This is nothing new. The only reason you think this is somehow novel is you have no sense of history. And yet what I'm finding and what is true ever since Jonah Goldberg wrote his book, Liberal Fascism, I've seen it more and more. He pointed out that the left has to have no sense of history because they always want to do something different. They always wind up doing the old stuff, but they never are committed to history. They have no sense of history. They don't. There's no sense of history on the left. So they can come out and say, we're working through the apocalypse. This is not the apocalypse, by the way. The apocalypse is going to come. We will one day see the apocalypse, but today is not that day. And they don't get it. Back to this. Since the pandemic began, workers in America face compounding and continuous crises. There's the threat of the virus itself, which has taken a devastating toll on frontline workers with line cooks, warehouse employees, and agricultural workers at especially high risk of death in 2020. The first wave of the virus also brought economic hardship in the form of job insecurity, slashed hours, and depleted savings, anxieties that fell especially hard on black and, here it comes, Latinx workers who had less wealth than white ones to begin with and who were less likely to receive federal assistance in the form of PPP loans. As COVID-19 raged, Americans witnessed the murder of George Floyd and ongoing police violence against black Americans, a reminder that the pandemic was not the only threat to black life. At the same time, then-President Donald Trump refused to say whether he'd accept the results of the 2020 election, stoking widespread fear. There are some people out there who want to live in fear. There are some people out there who wish to be scared all the time. And we're seeing more and more of this on the left. They want to live in fear. The CEOs of Southwest Airlines and United, or no, CEOs of Southwest and American Airlines testified before Congress yesterday that masks on airplanes don't really do much, if anything, against COVID. Here's the Southwest CEO. We ever, do you think, be able to get on an airplane without masks? Colleagues' comments uh, on the quality of the air, it's, uh, the, the statistics I recall is 99.97% of airborne pathogens uh, are captured by the HEPA filtering system and is turned over every two or three minutes. We use UT Southwestern and Stanford School of Medicine but, um, yeah, I, I think the case uh, is very strong that uh, masks don't add much, if anything, uh, in the uh, air cabin environment. It's very safe and very high quality com- compared to uh, uh, any other indoor setting. For the record, the air exchange in airplanes is one to two minutes. 
you get brand new air in the airplane every one to two minutes. It is as good, if not better, than high-grade surgical facilities. And the air in an airplane is not pushed out when you breathe out. It goes straight down. It's pulled down uh, by the airflow in the cabin. By design, it's pushed down. So here you have the CEOs of two major American airlines saying there really is no need for masks on airplanes at this point. Here's Caddy K on Morning Joe. Yeah, I just don't know what I think about that. But the comments drew criticism from Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian, later telling CNBC he doesn't agree with those remarks, especially with the spread of the Omicron variant. I'm, I'm just not sure I'd be at all comfortable, Joe, would you, getting on a plane if no one was wearing masks? I'm not comfortable getting on a plane if no one was wearing masks. I, I, you know, guess what? When you get on the plane and they give you a drink, you get to take your mask off. If you eat slowly on the plane, you get to take your mask off. You 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 get the plane, you, you get on the plane, you get to take your mask off by eating and drinking. So Caddy K may not like it, but people are already taking their masks off. And you know, on Delta, Ed Bastain, listen, I think of all the airlines, he's done better navigating COVID than the others. I got issues there, but with Delta, I think they've done a very good job. And I understand his concern. Omicron is new, but we're always going to have something new. But at this point, given even Delta's sales pitch, I remember flying during the outbreak of COVID. In the early days of COVID, I had to take a couple of trips I couldn't get out of. And everybody's wearing a mask. And on Delta, their real big sales pitch is our airflow on these planes is better than high-end surgical facilities. Our airflow renews itself so often and gets rid of the germs with its HEPA filters and everything else, you're better here than anywhere else. Was it just a sales pitch or is it true? And yet, like Caddy K, I'm just not sure I could get on a plane without people wearing a mask. Some people want to be miserable. Some people wish to be in despair. This progressive writer at Vox who thinks, oh, why are we even working during the pandemic or during the apocalypse? Why is this writer at Vox working during the pandemic? If she thinks that we shouldn't be working, why is she working? Why isn't she practicing what she's preaching? Oh, oh, and she does have, have is this her? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, okay, she's 38 years old. Grew up in Los Angeles, lives in Brooklyn, graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa, wrote for the New York Times, Jezebel BuzzFeed Salon, a standard progressive writer, so really no real-world experience outside of writing, and thinks that some of us should just give it up, stop, stop working. Because it's the apocalypse, some people can't give it up. There are people who do have to have income. They have to, you know, make money. It's just I'm I'm I I wonder does she have rich parents? I have no idea. But the idea that you're just going to stop working because bad things are happening around us, some people need to actually have income. 
And Congress is not going to abandon the capitalist system just to placate the fears and desires of people like her. You know, and honest to goodness, this is something the left forgets. Working is good for your soul. Working's actually good for us. Working is actually a very good thing for you and me. It replenishes the soul. It makes us feel like we're doing something. The left has embraced rioting and protest as liturgical, as sacramental, as part of their secular religion. But ultimately, at the end of the day, work is what's good for us. You know, even in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and Eve and puts them to work immediately. You got to take care of the garden. Work's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. We're all going to have a job. There's something soul nourishing about having a job. Sitting on your butt and twiddling your thumbs because, oh, well, there's a riot today and there's a pandemic and it's the apocalypse. Might as well give up. No, you plow ahead and continue to make the world a better place. But these people don't seem to get that. You know, a group that does seem to get this is Patriot Mobile, which is why they fund the conservative movement, because they know there's value in work and they want to support workers. They want to support the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. They want to support the free market. They want your support as a business that you do business with. They share your values. They're Christian and conservative. Patriot Mobile is a cell phone company. They use the same towers everybody else uses. So you don't have to worry about your coverage. You get 5G, you get wireless, you get data, you get voice, you name it, from Patriot Mobile. And they take a portion of their profits and support the conservative movement. You can do business with them and get free activation by using my name by going to patriotmobile.com slash Eric. That's patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Or you can call them. They have 100% U.S.-based customer service. Their phone number is 972-PATRIOT. 972-PATRIOT. Tell them I sent you. You get uh, free activation. But if, if you've got any hesitancy at all about their coverage, go to patriotmobile.com. They've got a coverage map. You can see they've got great coverage all over the nation. And again, they use the same towers everybody else uses, so you don't have to worry about it. Good company, good people. They share your values, and they put their money where their mouth is by funding the conservative movement. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. This is how the program brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. Wherever you are nationwide, they can help your business grow. They don't work with individuals. They work with businesses, and they can help your business get access to large loans where a lot of banks are saying no to people. First Liberty makes their own lending decisions. So if you need six-figure loans, and you don't want to go through the bank bureaucracy, reach out to First Liberty. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website, FirstLibertyGA.com. All right, back to the phones we go. Let's see here. Ariel, I'm going to go to you next. Welcome to the program. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Our whole office is so curious about your food poisoning. We love listening to you talk about your recipes, and we want to know if you gave yourself food poisoning. No. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, so uh, two Sundays ago or three Sundays ago, I had friends over uh, on the front porch and made a new recipe. I did uh, bacon wrapped jalapenos and stuffed them with breakfast sausage and cream cheese. And then one of the guys on the front porch went home and woke up in the middle of the night with food poisoning. I thought, oh my gosh, but nobody else did, just him. And then it turns out he had been at a wedding the day before and, and like half the guests got food poisoning. I was like, oh, thank goodness it wasn't me. So I was out of town. And, you know, my wife says maybe maybe it's actually a stomach bug and not food poisoning. But given the symptoms, I'm inclined to think, it, it, given all the stuff that happened that I won't discuss with you, I'm, I think it was food poisoning. 
I was out of town. Uh, ate at a very nice restaurant, and I don't want to shame the restaurant because it might not have been them. I'll tell you what I honestly thought it was. I stayed at a hotel, and they had bottled water in the room, and I was taking uh, medicine before I went to bed and used one of those hotel bottles of water. I don't know how long that bottle of water had been in the hotel room, but it was the most putrid-tasting water I have ever put in my mouth. And I took like a giant gulp of it to swallow these pills, and I gagged. It was so disgusting. I'm like, oh, my gosh, um, is this water, is there something wrong with this water? I have been sick ever since. I don't know whether it was the restaurant. I think it was the restaurant. I look at, I think it was, uh, my initial reaction was it was the bottle of water. Everyone's like, you can't get sick off of a bottle of water. I don't know. You should have tasted this water. It, I mean, the the bottle had not been tampered. I mean, it was sealed bottle, but oh my gosh, it was so disgusting. I've never had water that tasted so disgusting in my life. Um, it, it, water shouldn't taste at all. But anyway, I digress. It was not my cooking. Uh, <laughs> you know, I live in fear though of, of causing food. Po- I really genuinely, it's like one of my phobias when I cook shrimp and stuff. I like, I make sure I eat well before people get there. Just so if I start feeling bad from it, I won't serve it. Um, and now that reminds me, I got to put the bacon wrapped jalapenos out on as a recipe, I need to start sending out more recipes. All right, uh, the rest of you on the line, uh, I don't have enough time for a phone call right here, but I want to take your call. I will take them out of the gate when we come back. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Frankly, you're doing me a favor by calling in today because my voice is so shoddy after uh, 24 hours of, of horridness. Uh, <laughs> uh, we won't, I don't want to describe it for you and make you guys sick. But we do have other stuff to talk about. Real quick, though. This is the dumbest story of the year, I think. A ship is going to be fitted with a giant kite to move it across the Atlantic Ocean. In other words, we're going back to sailing ships. At the start of next year, the Ville de Bordeaux, a 154-meter-long ship that moves aircraft components for Airbus, will unfurl a 500-square-meter kite on journeys across the Atlantic Ocean. It will undergo six months of trials and tests before full deployment. While the industry has come up with multiple decarbonization initiatives, it is struggling to keep pace with goals set out under the Paris Agreement on Climate. There's also pressure on shipping lines from large customers who want to cut out their pollution. So they're bringing back sails, except now they're going to call them kites and they're going to sail massive tankers. This is embarrassing. The last time we depended on solar and wind power, we called it the dark ages for a reason. And here we go again. This is just, I mean, this is the dumbest story I've read this year. We're going to bring back sailing ships. And you thought these last two years were crazy. Welcome to 2022. It's coming up and nothing makes sense still, especially in business. If you're a small business owner, good luck getting financing from a big bank right now. I can offer you a fantastic solution. If you're looking for $750,000 or more in financing for your business, First Liberty Building and Loan. Let's say you want to buy a new building or you want to refi existing debt or you want to buy a company. Basically, you see opportunity for your business to grow, but you've hit a wall with the mega banks getting financing. That's where First Liberty Building and Loan and my friends, the Frost family, come in. They solve small business financing problems better than anyone I've ever seen. They say yes, where big banks say no. It's that simple. Look, just do this. Spend 10 minutes with them. 
Call them, First Liberty Building and Loan. Say Eric sent you. In 10 minutes, you'll know if you're a good fit for their program. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. They help small businesses nationwide in all 50 states. Firstlibertyga.com. 